Welcome to LOA Today. I'm Walt Keeson. I've been doing this podcast since September of 2012, and boy, are my lips tired. This is your daily dose of happy. We are so happy you decided to join us today. Can't join us this week, but she'll be back again next week. However, I am joined by a special guest today. Her name is Annette Copeland. I should probably say Dr. Annette Copeland. She is a naturopathic doctor, um, but she's also the author of a book called Dragonfly Into the Light, uh, which I'm kind of inferring. I haven't read the book yet, but from what I've seen, I'm kind of inferring. It's more about her personal journey rather than uh, her journey as a doctor, but we'll find out about that pretty quickly. So, Annette, welcome to the program. How are you doing today? I'm great. It's so good to be here. It's good to have you here. All right, so we got to start off with a little biography. So give us an idea of how you got to become where you are today, Dr. Annette Copeland. <laughs> well, I started um, at 16 by being a teen mom, and Ooh. I spent, you know, most of my life trying to figure things out because I started pretty early and I, I didn't get the same start that a lot of people get. You know, I was instantly thrown into being an adult and I mm. missed out on some of the good, fun kid stuff like prom and senior trip and all of those mm. things. That, and some of those things are where you learn some of the things that turn you into an adult and who you're going to be. So I had a little bit of a different uh, start than most people. Mm. Um, but I ended up learning, I always used to call it the school of hard knocks, which mm. has been actually a pretty awesome journey. Really. I've lived a really cool life. My bucket list has been very well checked off, <laughs> <laughs> raised my daughter. She's 37 now. And I decided about 13 years ago that I wanted to be a naturopathic doctor so I went back to school at like the age of 40 or 41, something like that, and got my doctorate at 45. And so I have all of that knowledge as well as all of the, you know, the abundance and manifesting and all of those things that I've learned through my journey. So I love the topic that you talk about and I love helping other people learn how to become their best self. What made you decide to become an ND? I had some health issues that started around the age of 30 that the medical community was really struggling to figure out. And I met a doctor at the age of 40 who was a chiropractor who taught functional medicine. So I got to follow him around and I learned a lot about the human condition and how a lot of times we're really treating symptoms, not the root cause. And he got me very interested in natural medicine, which takes a little longer to get things done than, you know, like prescriptions and things like that. But overall, you end up more healthy in the long run because you're not treating symptoms, which is just chasing stuff. Valid point. In fact, uh, something I had not really thought about until someone pointed it out here on the show within the last year or two. Uh, but mainstream medical science never claims to cure anything. It, it's an amazing thing. I mean, they, they basically have the monopoly here in, in the West on mm -hmm. all of medicine, but by their own admission, they never cure anything. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wait, hold on. Excuse me? <laughs> yeah. I haven't figured that one out yet. 
Yeah, I could go down a whole rabbit hole on that, but I will, uh, I'll not do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, from that, that perspective, I guess I can really appreciate somebody going into, uh, well, any kind of alternative um, as we've actually had a number of doctors here on the show who, uh, to one degree or another, took steps away from the mainstream, which, of course, in and of itself is a risk, especially if you already have your MD or other medical uh, doctorate degree, because there's a lot of pressure within mainstream sure. medicine. Yeah. yeah. So whenever somebody steps outside the bounds, we try to applaud them by bringing them on the show. But but you you didn't step outside the bounds. You like leapt outside of the bounds. <laughs> you yeah, went I just started on the outside. I, <laughs> and you know, I just because of where I started, it it wasn't feasible for me to go down the medical doctor road because mm. it takes too long and it costs too much money. Mm. And you know, I was at the age of forty, I already had my first grandchild, so wow. it wasn't. It wasn't something I could do was to go back mm. to school at that point and do an eight year degree. Right, right. Um, yeah. And I but, didn't have energy for that either. <laughs> well, I think you also have to have the enthusiasm for it. I mean, that is definitely a calling, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's tough. Yeah. Very tough. And it will, it, it weeds out the ones who are sort of on the, the fence about it pretty quickly. I mean, organic chemistry will do that all by itself, but the oh, rest of so. Yeah. 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 And when you're passionate about, first of all, I had a person to help who was myself. But mm-hmm. then as I was learning how to take care of myself, I was learning also how, how to help care for other people and just learning how the human body works and then really getting an understanding of all the biology and how things go together. But then when you're studying natural medicine, the holistic approach is important. So mm-hmm. you start to realize that mindset and all of those things go together as well to create a healthy body, mind, body, spirit. Without one of those, you're not a whole person. And it's interesting, too, how the holistic field has pretty much bridged the gap between mainstream Western medicine and Eastern medicine. Mm-hmm. It, it like borrows from both camps, which is very cool. I like that. Yeah. It does. Yeah. In a good way, I think. And I mean, I see naturopathic doctors and functional medicine doctors that still do what a friend of mine would call a pill for an ill. Mm. You know, they just replace prescriptions with supplements. And I try not to do that. That's not my goal. I'm not looking to fit every single person with some sort of supplement that's going to fix them. It's really about finding out what's going on with the person and do they need a different type of eating? Do they need different exercise than other people? You know, what is it going to be that makes them healthy? Not what kind of pill can I give you to make you feel better for now? It's really about getting all the way to a healthy perspective. Okay. So this seems like a good spot to uh, bring in the other side of your career uh, as an author. Um, And as we mentioned before, you're the author of the book, Dragonfly Into the Light. Tell us the genesis of, of that story. Well, it's fiction. It's a novel. And I started writing that book when I was, it was probably like 2006. And I started basically writing it for myself as therapy because I had been through some traumatic relationships. And at that point, I still didn't understand my part of those toxic relationships that I was in. And it started from a child for me. There were things I was exposed to that left me 
lacking in certain areas. I didn't have good boundaries. I couldn't recognize a red flag if it was like waving in my face. I just didn't <laughs> see those things. And over since about 2006, I've been on a healing journey mm. to learn how to become a better person and to really get emotionally grown, re emotionally regulated, emotionally intelligent, however you want to say it. Mm. And over the last probably five to 10 years, I've really had a lot of growth in that area. And I wanted to share what I was learning in a way that was fun and captivating and educational at the same time. So I decided to make this book a work of fiction that was very easy to read. And most people say, once you start, you can't put it down because it's very, like it locks you into the characters and the characters are very real and very relatable. But then also it weaves in some education on how to start becoming a person who isn't necessarily pulled into those types of toxic mm. relationships. Yeah. So it's a healing journey, but it's also educational as you read it. I love the fact that you decided to do it as a work of fiction in part because I did something similar myself. The topic was entirely different. I was trying to help people understand how money supplies and monetary systems work. And I wrote a fictional book about that. Turns out nobody really cared, but nevertheless, I appreciate the approach because I, I think it's a better way to teach. If you're trying to explain something to somebody, do it through a fiction, fictional story, because people love stories. You know, not yeah. fiction often put people to sleep, but nobody ever falls asleep with, with even the halfway decent story. Yeah. Well, and I just thought if I could do it as a fictional story, first of all, there's nobody to blame. There's no real mm -hmm. people to blame. Right. So nobody can say that I was pointing fingers at them. But also I could create characters based on several different concepts and really build the character out in a way that was super relatable to many people and still weave in those educational moments as well. Mm -hmm. So it was much easier to use fiction that way because I wasn't worried about portraying someone in a light that they might be offended by or anything like that. So Yeah, because you made up the character, so they yeah. can be whatever you want them to be, and no nobody's going to sue you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thankfully. All yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's a sensitive topic when you're talking about emotional abuse and trauma. Mm. And I have to say, both of my parents have read the book, and they both loved it. Okay. And I mean, part of the book talks about generational trauma. So they were the two people I was concerned about the most that might be offended by something that I wrote, but they both took it and really enjoyed the characters and the story. And they thought it was extremely, extremely relatable as well. So it was really good to get that feedback from them. That's excellent. That's really, really good. And, and you're, Fear was certainly well-founded. I've, I've been encountering people lately, and not too often, but I've been encountering people who have been through traumas and so forth, and they are offended by some of the ideas that I'm sure are in your book I, that we talk about here on the show. Um, they, they, they get upset about it. They, they, they start thinking that, you know, you, know, you believe in that stuff, you're, you're arrogant or you're, you know, you're, you're full of it or whatever, however they want to phrase it. But it, it I mean, cause a lot of these ideas challenge people. And unless you're ready to be challenged, you're going to get pissed off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and everybody these days, everybody wants to talk about being triggered. And, you know, I just would challenge people to think of triggers as an opportunity for growth. 
if something is triggering you, if it's upsetting you, if it's really pulling at your heartstrings, then is there a lesson there for you to learn? Is there some growth there that you might be being exposed to that is, you know, opening up opportunity for you? Yeah, I've mentioned before that I, I, I'm not much of a TV watcher, but there's one TV series that I've enjoyed, this Ted Lasso series on Apple TV. There's a character in them who I really like, Dr. Shermer. She's a psychologist called in by the team to help deal with some of their issues. And one of the things that she says repeatedly in the show is, the truth will set you free, but first it's going to piss you off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and even just like yesterday, I had a little, a little mini breakthrough because I realized that whenever a certain topic would come up around me, like divorce or something, I would instantly feel my body having a reaction, even though my mind is fine, it's clear, it's okay about the topic of divorce, but my body would have a reaction. And I realized that my nervous system is still like programmed to have a certain response around that topic. Whereas my mind is no longer upset by it. Mm. But when your body starts to have a reaction, then of course it pulls your mind in as well. So then it's a, a full body reaction. So being aware that I have that little thing right now that I, I just need to pay attention to kind of changed my whole outlook on that topic. So like, say I, have to talk to my lawyer or whatever. It's it's no longer something that instantly is like a gut punch. I kind of, I'm like, okay, so I just need to prepare my nervous system for this. I know it's coming so that I'm not instantly feeling unsafe and unwell and scared and concerned about what's going to happen because I know that mentally I have this, I've got this, and I need to just let my nervous system know that it's okay and it can relax. So I'm, I'm actually now seeing the parallels that, that kind of bridge for you the self-development side with the naturopathic physician side, because there's a, there is a, a lot of overlap there, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Bruce Lipton wrote a book. I think it's called The Biology of, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I can't think of the oh, title. Biology of Belief, I think. There you go. Biology of Belief. That's correct. Yeah. And yeah. he talks about cellular memory in that right. book. Yeah. And it's it's really true. And that's I love that book. I haven't read it for years. It's been like seven years since I read it. But I really liked the concept that your cells have memory and your body can remember things, even if you're not consciously aware, like your subconscious can remember. Like a lot of people can tell you that on certain days of the year, they are going to have a bad day because... 20 years ago, they lost a parent or they lost something or someone they cared about and their body remembers on that calendar day, even if they're not mentally thinking about it, their body remembers. And it might take them a couple hours to figure out why they feel off or they don't feel like their self or they're not as cheerful as they normally are. And then all of a sudden they'll be like, oh, today is the 12th. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And then they're better once they make that connection. Yeah. And I've experienced that myself. I know exactly what that feels like because I've lost both of my parents. And yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't, it wasn't terribly traumatic because they had both had long, happy lives. Um, but still there's a piece, you know, that, that goes missing. Yeah. Well, and you always have that where you're going to pick up the phone and call them and then you're like, Oh, can't I do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have their number. <laughs> 
still have to work on that inner being connection. Hello, anybody listening? Hello. Exactly. (laughs) Which, by the way, does work. That's another topic, but that actually can work. So, but for you with, uh, with, with the parallel interests, the parallel careers, if you will, of on the one hand being a naturopathic physician, on the other hand, being an author, helping uh, people to just have a, a, a way of understanding how to deal with the traumas they've been carrying all their lives. When, yeah. when, when you're walking those two paths, as I'm sure you do every single day in your life, where, where, where do you find yourself really bringing them into your, your interactions with people? I imagine you do with your patients, with your, with, with your naturopathic patients, um, but are there other, other areas as well? Yeah. Well, I mean, just in relationships in general or standing in line at the grocery store, I can hmm. spot a child that ex- has been exposed to trauma almost always because of the behavior that they have. Sure. It's easier with children because children aren't as good at hiding how right. they really feel. With adults, it's a little more complex, but I can, I can see it on people now and I can tell that the way they're behaving isn't necessarily deliberate. It's like a learned habit. It's biochemistry based on what they've experienced in their lifetime. And I see, and science has proven that trauma and toxic lifestyles have basically created and expanded the autoimmune issues that people have in this day and age. Expand on that for a moment, because I think that's an important point. Yeah, people that have autoimmune issues, especially ones that come with like joint pain, fatigue, and short-term memory problems, often are very tightly woven with some sort of trauma, typically long-term trauma, not like a car accident. Although a car accident can set off a series of health-related problems. But typically long-term trauma, like they were in a household situation, either with a parent or a sibling or a spouse who was extremely unpredictable was maybe violent or even just like to scream and yell a lot, that sort of trauma can set you up with a stress response that's not healthy and too much cortisol can cause all kinds of problems. And once you're exposed to cortisol like that on a regular basis, it can start to affect your short-term memory. So when somebody says, you don't remember And then you start to wonder, hmm, maybe I don't remember exactly because you can't trust your own memories because you're you're starting to wonder if they're if they're right. Mm -hmm. And so if you add that short term memory loss from the cortisol to someone who is either gaslighting you or just mean in general and, you know, calls you names and calls you out on things and tells you that you're crazy, you start to believe it because you can't recall situations as well as you should be able to. And then you start to play into it as well. So that trauma just keeps perpetuating itself. And eventually it starts to show up in physical ways. And in fact, isn't it also true that it doesn't actually have to be something that was traumatic to you directly, but for instance, you could have say a family member who struggled with alcohol and maybe died from some version of alcoholism or they had a drug problem or something like that. And it's not directly on you, but you had that, you know, that personal, that familial relationship 
with yeah. somebody who, you know, it suffered severely and in that way it affected you. Yeah, it is very true. And there are so many families nowadays where at least one family member is addicted to something, mm. alcohol or some sort of drugs or prescriptions are so common now to be addicted to. And, you know, it, it's, it's a shame that people end up in those situations, but we're not geared to spot that in early enough advanced time to stop it from happening. Like the opiate crisis in America is just, it's crazy. You know, they, they give you opiates to help with some pain without figuring out what the root cause is. And instead of fixing you, they've just handed you a whole bucket full of additional problems to deal with. And your back might not hurt anymore, but now you're addicted to painkillers. And when they decide, okay, you're taking too many painkillers, we're taking them away from you. Then not only do you have an addiction to deal with, but your back pain comes back because it was never resolved in the first place. And then you're depressed and in pain and oftentimes not able to work anymore. And then you become basically a ward of the state because you're depending on support to live your very, very small life because they don't give you much to live on. So it's a problem. And I don't know about other countries, but I know the United States has a big problem. I I think it's it's all over the place. You're right. It's especially in the U.S. But I think it's all over the place. Um, I I actually encountered somebody recently who uh, lost a son because the son got in an accident, was given um, opiates to kill the pain after he was released and, and healed from the physical injury. He was addicted and started developing a heroin addict, got worse and worse over a long period of time, and then he overdosed. Yeah. And Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. just utterly tragic. It is. Yeah. Super. Now, as we're touching on these very painful subjects, we also want to be finding ways to turn things around. And that kind of ties into what you do, first of all, as an ND, also ties into what you were writing about in your book. Let's address some of those things. How do we go about, you know, we can't change the fact that, you know, the, the, the spouse was abusive or, you know, the sibling got addicted or whatever. But what do we do? Well, first of all, we have to get rid of the stigma that tells people that if you were in a situation like that, that you shouldn't talk about it. And you shouldn't ask for help and you shouldn't express your feelings because the worst part about being involved in a situation where there was some sort of toxic or traumatic behavior going on is you're taught to feel shame around the whole situation. And it's not even your shame. A lot of times you're protecting another person. Like if you're living in a house with someone who's an alcoholic and they have a tendency to have outbursts of bad behavior then you're consistently covering up for their behavior, especially if for some reason they might every once in a while knock you around a little bit. Maybe you have a bruise on your arm because they shoved you into a wall. Somebody's like, what did you? Oh, I'm just clumsy. I'm clumsy. You're not helping yourself by lying about what just happened to you, but it's embarrassing. So we have got to get rid of the shame around those kinds of behaviors and start teaching people First of all, how to get themselves out of a situation when they're in one. But part of the reason I wrote this book was because I feel like there are a lot of people that are in emotionally abusive relationships 
with either family members or partners and they don't even realize they're being abused. Mm -hmm. They don't understand why they're in a deep depression and they weren't a depressed person previously, but suddenly they're depressed and they can't understand why. And that's kind of what happened to me. I, I was like at the pinnacle of my career, I was making plenty of money. I had two homes and I was in a relationship that was very toxic and I didn't see it at all. And I was becoming more and more depressed. And one day I was sitting at my desk and I was like, why am I depressed? I have everything I've ever wanted. My bucket list is all checked off and I hate my life. Mm -hmm. I hate it. I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. I can't sleep at night. I'm miserable. And it finally clicked. I was like, oh, I'm not in a good position. I'm not in a good place. The person I'm living with isn't treating me nice. Like I need to make some changes in my life. And I tried desperately to change the situation without leaving it. And eventually I realized I had to leave. It wasn't going to get better. But even that first decision of trying to change the situation, that alone takes a breakthrough. Yeah. Because, because I, mean, I mean, you described it as shame. I think it's an accurate description, but it, it also goes beyond that. It's like violating social mores in some undefined way. You know, society is going to get upset with you if you challenge that status quo in some way. Right. Well, and you're also told, you know, you can't tell people about this. You can't talk about this because mm. then you're going to make me look bad. And then if you make me look bad, then I'm going to tell everybody all the dirty little secrets that I know mm -hmm. about you. Yeah, that, that makes it even worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when that starts coming out, it makes it very difficult to leave because you've got so much shame at that point that you're afraid that the skeletons in your closet are going to start coming out. And in all honesty, if you really talk to somebody who's lived a normal life, they have the same skeletons in their closet. People just don't talk about the stuff that they do or the way that they feel publicly. So when you start talking to people about the things that you're afraid of, you find that they have the same fears and the it's same skeletons. It's also interesting how important your social circle is. Yeah. Because uh, what I've noted is that the people who have the biggest traumatic experiences, the, the biggest challenges, the ones that they're not even willing to face, study perhaps, are surrounded by other people with exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like people are really good at creating social circles that include no I, I have all these problems i'm going to include all these healthy people in my social circle so i can have all these they, people don't learn to do that normally that's not the way it no. comes together you know? right well birds of a feather right so right. if you are one of those people that deals with a lot of shame and guilt in your life you're not going to feel comfortable hanging around with people that are openly talking about their feelings it's going to be very uncomfortable which raises the very important question who do you talk to because yeah. <laughs> if you've got all people, well, the ones that are, are in the same kind of boat you are, they're just going to feed back the same stuff all. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're going to validate your feelings. Yeah. And they're going to, like, intensify your crazy, if that's what you want to call yourself. They're just, it's not a healthy relationship. So you don't necessarily need a hype squad that's telling you that you're right and your life is horrible and your spouse or your dad or whoever is a bad person, you need people that encourage you to become a better you. And so that, that leads person. to the ultimate question. How do you do that? 
I mean, yeah. you, you, this is your circle of friends. They aren't serving you. You don't dare talk to the others like you were talking. How do you find the people? <laughs> that is a great question. And I've been very fortunate because I've always had a huge friend base that I could lean on. But there were times in my life when I was going through something that I wasn't as good of a friend as I could have been. Like if my friends hadn't continuously checked up on me, we wouldn't have talked because I was in that shame circle. And I was just, I didn't want to talk to anybody about what I was going through because I was embarrassed that I got myself into another bad relationship or I was embarrassed that I got myself into a job that was a dead end job and it was never going to be what I thought it was going to be or whatever the circumstance was. I didn't want to keep telling my friends how bad I was at making decisions and why my life was turned upside down one more time, why I was starting over again at 25 and then again at 30 and then again at 40 or whatever. It's a cycle. And eventually you just get tired of telling people, you know, cause your friends are like, their lives are getting better and yours just keeps getting worse. And you're like, I don't understand. Mm -hmm. So unless you're, able to start communicating how you feel. I mean, I'm sure my friends would have supported me in every possible way if I had just told them what was going on. But I didn't because I was ashamed. Okay. All right. Um, I still have a, a little bit of a doubt going on in my head. And, and it comes down to what we were talking about before. The people uh, tend to hang out with other people with similar kinds of problems. And Let's say, for instance, one of your problems is that you're—I I think you described yourself at one point as being codependent, and uh, mm -hmm. you're, you're, or the flip side of that could be an enabler. You know, so if you're if you're a codependent person surrounded by enablers, that's you, you could probably tell them what's going on, but it, it's not necessarily going to help anything. Right. Well, and I, yeah, codependent. I would totally say that that was my situation. And the problem with codependent people, and and this is a very touchy subject. A lot of people don't like it when you say this, but codependent people become really good manipulators too. Sure. Because they're consistently trying, they're walking on eggshells all the time. They're trying to please everyone. They don't say what's on their mind because they're afraid to rock the boat. That is also a form of manipulation because mm -hmm. you're not being your authentic self. And you become that way because you're around people that kind of create that sort of dynamic. So I'm not saying it's your fault that you're manipulating the situation, but you are in your own way because walking on eggshells isn't going to fix anything. It's only going to make you feel worse and give the other person more power. So it's really a complex situation to be in. And I know a lot of people say, I'm an empath. I'm an empath. So I attract toxic people. Well, yeah, you do. But part of that is on you. It's up to you to recognize your patterns of behavior. And it's up to you to resolve the trauma that you have experienced so that you no longer are attracted to those traumatic situations. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things to face, too. We often call that radical responsibility around here. Yeah. Because it's radical. It's really radical. I am the common denominator of everything that's gone wrong in my life. I go, oh, no way. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, I, I can't, I can't accept that level of responsibility. It can't be true. It can't be that. These things have all happened to me. Right. Oh yeah. I've had some very angry people tell me that I'm wrong with mm -hmm. a lot of expletives. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if you're not ready to take responsibility for your own behavior, 
then you can't change the cycle. That's right. Yeah. And that, that's where it really becomes tragic because that's a situation where the person has been handed like a, you know, a life rope or a life, uh, a life boy or something like that. And they aren't grabbing it. Yeah. And, 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 and that's hard because I mean, that basically means you have to say, okay, I respect their right to, you know, not grab the, the, the floating life boy and, and just, you know, they're going to go where they're going to go. Yeah. That's, that's tough. Well, I mean, and so I had a baby at 16 and I got married at 16 and divorced at 18. And I was bound and determined that I wasn't going to ask anybody for help. Mm -hmm. I was going to do it all by myself. And I was one of those, I don't need your help people. And my daughter wore starched, ironed, perfectly prepared clothing to kindergarten. And when she got to first grade, she wanted to wear stripes and plaid or polka dots and stripes. And I'd be like, no, you're not wearing that because somebody's going to think I let you out of the house looking that way. And that's not going to be on me. And we had a lot of arguments when my daughter was young because she had to behave a certain way because I was afraid it was going to look bad on me because Mm -hmm. I felt like I had all these eyes on me because I was such a young mom. And I can remember when she was in first grade, I went to the school for her student parent conference or whatever. And the teacher pushed this paper across the desk to me and said, can you take this home and have your mom sign it? And I was like, huh? And she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. You're Kim's mom. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh. And she Mm -hmm. was like, you're so young. I'm sorry. I thought you were her sister. Mm -hmm. And it was like, wow. It was just so crazy to me that she didn't understand that I was her mom. And it was like eye opening. And I was like, wow, nobody gets it. Nobody knows unless you tell them. So how did you end up processing that? Um, I didn't have the tools at that age to process anything. I was just like, those people are dumb. And I just moved on. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that's actually not such a terrible response, but yeah, I get your point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I was 21 years old. I didn't have the tools at that time to process anything. And I talk about tools a lot because that's what I consider the way that we will learn and how we will teach other people to become self-sufficient emotionally. And I'm one of those people that believes that if you're triggered and you explode on someone else, that's your responsibility. It's not their responsibility that they triggered you. It's your responsibility to understand why they triggered you and learn how to have a normal, natural, acceptable response that comes from kindness and grace, not exploding in anger and blaming other people. Well, I think we should probably also qualify a little bit because if the person, uh, if the other person is doing so deliberately, they, they certainly do engage in, in some level of responsibility for that because that's, oh, that's of their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But the way you react or respond to other people's behavior says a lot about who you are. And when people are deliberately causing you pain and agony, then those are just people that you don't need to have in your life because they're most likely not going to stop doing that. If you've asked them to stop and they continue, they're probably not going to stop. 
And yet here we are back to square one where we say, okay, so I'm faced with this situation. I've got to change it. I don't dare change it. I don't have anything to change it to. Yeah, it's very scary. And I mean, there are tons of programs out there for people now. And I reached out to, honestly, the first thing, the first step that I did when I decided that I was going to figure out why I kept ending up in situations that were scary and unhealthy was I went to Al-Anon. And I, I only went to one meeting because my situation started changing rapidly at that point. And I ended up leaving, actually leaving the state that I was in. Um, wow. But I, it was so amazing to be in a room with 10 other people that didn't necessarily understand my personal situation, but they all had their own situation. Like some of them were parents who had lost children to drugs. Some of them were spouses of alcoholics. And they all had their own story and their own pain. But the thing that we all had in common was shame. Every single one of us. And we had layers of guilt around the situations that we were in, whether it was our fault that we got there or not, if we could have done something different. Like there were so many questions and really no answers. But it was awesome to be in that room with those people because they were all being so honest and so open about how they felt. And it was so cool to be accepted, no matter how broken I felt to be accepted into that group. So, I mean, if worst case scenario, if you're in a situation where you just feel like you have nobody, find an Al-Anon meeting to go to or find a group therapy session somewhere for people that are in those kinds of situations, because you will find people that are on the same path as you and they'll be in different phases of healing, but it's a great start. You're touching on one of my favorite points and it's not an easy one, but it's still one of my favorites. And that is you, you've made the decision on some level that even though you have no idea how to accomplish it, you've got to make some change of some kind. Yeah. And you, you may not feel like you have the support circle for it. You may not feel like you have the resources for it. You may not be able to afford the money for it. You may not have anything that you think you, you need to do this. But if you can just somehow make the decision to do it anyway, and even though you have no idea how it's going to happen, just kind of take a step even in the wrong direction. That, yeah. that to me is, that that's the bravest thing in the world. But it's also how the journey starts. Right. Well, you have to have some sort of momentum. Right. For the universe to kick in, there has to be momentum. So you taking a step in faith in any direction is better than not taking a step at all. It is an amazing thing. I, uh, I, I like to follow some of the uh, major law of attraction people, including Mike Dooley. I love, oh, I, love Dooley. Yeah. I love the way he explains this. He says it's kind of like works just like a GPS, because if you take a, your first step in the wrong direction, the GPS will say to you, make a legal U-turn. so you still end up going in the right direction yeah you know and i started a journey of self-growth when i was 30 like i just woke up one morning and i was like okay girl you need to forgive yourself for all the things that you messed up and just start clean slate and i've told a lot of my friends that you know back when i was in my 30s i was like just 
clean slate. Like wipe, wipe it all the way. Forgive yourself for all the stupid mistakes you made when you were younger and just start over and just be a better human. And you know, that doesn't clean it all up, but it at least makes you feel a little better about the situation. Like, okay, I can, I can do this. I can start going in a different direction and you can tell everybody or you can tell no one I've chosen to live out loud. I've chosen to be very public about my journey, but you don't have to be. It's not required. You can heal in silence. It's probably messier to heal in silence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You don't have as much support, but I mean, I think if you, if you live out loud, the people that need to be in your presence in order to make your life better will find their way to you if you make a little noise on your journey. This dovetails very nicely with the conversation we had on yesterday's show uh, with my co-hosts, Joel Elston and Sam Page. Uh, we were talking about uh, the book. Um, oh, what's the name of the book? Sure. Of course, it's just going to go right out of my, uh, my, right out of my head. <laughs> of course. But, uh, Atomic something or other. But anyway, the idea is about uh, taking... Atomic in- habits. I listened habits. to part of that interview this morning. Yes. Okay, yes. Atomic habits. And uh, the idea being uh, to take incremental steps, little tiny baby steps. Mm-hmm. And, and it's an amazing thing to to think, looking back on my own experience, just how powerful those baby steps really are. Because when you're taking them, it doesn't seem like much of anything has happened. I mean, you really are kind of on your own for a bit, just trying to just take steps, take steps. Yeah. And sometimes you take steps and sometimes you go a few days without taking steps. And you, you just kind of constantly reminding yourself to try, you know, take a little thing here, do a little thing there, try a process, do that, do this. You just constantly just try to find a way. And then eventually over time, usually it's not something you recognize yourself. Somebody else points it out to you. Mm-hmm. Somebody points out, look at what you've done so far. Yeah. And you look back and you say, oh. Yeah, I guess I did, didn't I? I didn't really notice. Yeah. Or you'll see a picture of yourself and you'll be like, oh my gosh, I look completely different than I did five years ago. Yeah. Completely different. Yeah. And you won't even know why or how, but you'll be like, I look happier or, you know, whatever it is. And people tell me, I saw somebody a couple weeks ago that I hadn't seen for probably three or four years. And when I walked in the room, she goes, you're back. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, I'm here, I'm back. And she goes, no, I mean, you're back. Mm. And I was like, mm, what do you mean? And she said, you're back. You're back to the person I knew six years ago, not the person I saw three years ago. And I was like, oh, yes, I'm back plus more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not the same person I was because I'll never be that person again. But I am back to who I am without all of that weight holding me down. When you're dragging all of that around with you, you cannot be fully you because it's just too heavy. It's too much to carry. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, when when we uh, tie this into the naturopathic side, let's, let, we haven't really gone into that in depth, but let's do that at this point. Um, you mentioned earlier how mainstream medicine has a tendency to treat symptoms only. It doesn't really get to the root of the issues. And that's certainly one of the goals of a naturopathic approach. But let's also tie it into this mindset that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Kind of paint a picture for us. Well, if you're dealing with health issues, and I don't like to like diagnose things or call out names of things, but you know, there are some health issues that are 
that have some really bad connotations to them. And just the name of them will put you in a tailspin if somebody says mm-hmm. it in a doctor's office to you. Not only you, but everybody in your family. Whenever you get a diagnosis that seems like it's horrible and awful, there are, and if you watch the movie The Secret, they talk very deeply about this, how you could get a diagnosis like cancer or something equally as awful, which there's not very many things as awful as that, but your mindset plays a huge role in whether or not you're able to recover from that. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, even if you aren't able to recover from that, your mindset makes a huge difference in the way your journey is going to play out from day one until the day you die, whether it be three months, six months, 10 years, 50 years from the time you get diagnosed, your mindset really, really, really plays a big role in that. And you can live an amazing life for three, six, nine months or 50 years because you changed your mindset or you can suffer deeply for that amount of time. And it probably won't be as long if you go down the road of feeling sorry for yourself and blaming and feeling really horrible about it. So having a positive mindset, which is the common term that people are used to to talking about, but I'm going to say raising your frequency, becoming a higher vibration person, getting to know yourself, getting to understand how faith plays a role in your life. And I don't just mean faith in one ultimate God. I do believe in God, but faith in yourself, faith in the people around you, faith in just creation and all of the things that are possible will change. It will cause a shift in you that will make whatever health issue you're going through less of a problem because you have a better mindset about the whole situation. And like I mentioned earlier, you can perpetuate health issues by having a low vibe mindset, a low frequency. You can make yourself physically ill by not having a high vibration. So what can you do on a daily basis? Like I talk about daily habits with people a lot. What daily habits can you start incorporating into your life that will raise your frequency on a daily basis? First of all, drink clean water, get good sleep, Do something that makes you feel positive, whether it be listening to a good podcast, listening to music that makes you feel good, getting outside in nature, like start adding some things to your daily to-do list that are for you, that raise your frequency. And as you do that, the people around you will also come to meet you. They'll rise in their frequency as well. A wonderful point. Beautiful presentation on how law of attraction works. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> I'm also curious to know uh, more specifically, though, about um, the the medical side of it, the natural medical side of it, because you are dealing with the physical body as well. Um, yeah. It's not just mindset, well, so let's go, kind of go down that path a little bit. Yeah. So, so typically medicine, allopathic medicine, our medicine that we use in this country is about forcing the body to do something. It's not about figuring out why the body is doing what it's doing. So if you have a trauma that happened, maybe you don't even remember it, something that happened when you were young and that trauma is like stuck in your central nervous system and it's keeping you off balance. 
then doing medicine to treat your symptoms is never going to fix anything. But healing your body at a cellular level and getting to the root problem, whether it be because of a blocked emotion or a stuck trauma or just a pattern. I always say that lifestyle is hereditary. Um, if your parents had diabetes, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have diabetes too. But if you were raised in the same house as them and you eat the same way as them and you have the same lifestyle as them, you know, the lack of exercise or poor quality food or whatever, the lifestyle itself is hereditary. And if you continue to perpetuate that same behavior, then you are way more likely to end up with diabetes than someone who educates themselves on what a healthy lifestyle looks like and starts living on purpose to avoid ending up with that situation. So like you can say that DNA is about responsible for maybe 15 to 20% of that and how you behave lifestyle is responsible for 80 to 85% of your health. So if a client comes to, uh, to, uh, consult with you, a patient comes to consult with you, how does the session go? Is, is a session mostly just a conversation about mindset? Well, I really want to talk about history, like what kind of things have happened health wise in the past. I want to get a good picture of what your lifestyle looks like and maybe what it looked like in the past. Cause a lot of times when people seek out a naturopathic doctor or a functional medicine doctor, they've already figured out that they need to do something different. Mm -hmm. So they've been trying to fix themselves for a while. Mm -hmm. So a recent history doesn't always uncover something. So you might have somebody that has like Lyme disease or something from a tick bite that happened 10 years ago and they've been battling their health for years. And if you're only going back six, nine or 12 months, you're not going to uncover something like that. Or somebody like me, I had Epstein-Barr virus from God knows mm -hmm. when. Wow. As a child, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I never had mono that I'm aware of, but I had Epstein-Barr. And Epstein-Barr has caused me all kinds of problems throughout my adult life. And when I... Find that one's pretty common, too, as I understand it. It is very common. And it yeah. causes, like, fatigue, thyroid problems, which is one of the things that I deal with. Is um, I have Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune thyroid disease, which one could argue also was perpetuated by my inability to speak my truth. So there's, you know, feeling like you can't say what's on your mind and having that stuck throat chakra, as some people would say, and then also having Epstein-Barr as something that would spike anytime my immune system took a hit, I would end up sick again with Epstein-Barr. I can't tell you how many times I've had sore throats in my life because <laughs> every time something would happen to me, I would end up with Epstein-Barr again. And that's not something that medicine diagnoses. They don't diagnose chronic Epstein-Barr. They might nowadays a little more than they used to, but when I was really struggling with it, you could tell a medical doctor that and they would be like, that's not a thing. You know, it's just because they're not exposed to it. They don't know. It's not that they don't want to. They just don't know. They're not taught to look for that kind of stuff. But in my world, we're taught to look for those kind of chronic underlying viruses like cytomegalovirus and things like that. Now, alpha-gal is a big one, which is a tick-borne illness where people get sick if they eat meat. Mm -hmm. So 
those kinds of things get overlooked frequently and the symptoms get handled, but it also comes into play with understanding someone's history and emotional history comes into that as well. Because if someone has a blocked mindset, like there's a growth mindset and there's a stuck mindset. So if someone has a stuck mindset and their money doesn't grow on trees and you know, you're going to have the same health problems that your parents had. If they're stuck in that mindset, then yeah, that's what they're going to end up with. But if they have a growth mindset and they're open to change and they're open to learning new things, then their mindset is allowing them to look at new possibilities and possibly heal something that they may not have had the opportunity to heal if they had stayed in that stuck mindset. So it really does matter what your mindset is like yeah. when you're trying to heal yourself because it's, it's all together. You yeah, can't do one re- without the other. It's kind of reinforcing whenever you hear anybody presenting law of attraction theory, it always starts with what your thoughts are and then follows up with what your feelings are and where you give your attention and so forth. And then there's the vibrational element and so forth. And that foundation plays out everything as understood by those who are advocates and even practitioners of of law of attraction theory. It it plays out in every arena, including in those arenas where nobody, or not nobody, where people don't believe in a law of attraction element, but it still plays out anyway. It's amazing how fast. It's there. The quantum realm is there, whether you believe in it or not. (laughs) And it's still doing all the things that it does, whether you believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. I, I, somebody tell me one day, you can't tell me that I attracted all of these horrible things to myself. Okay, I won't. Right, exactly. <laughs> Which is, by the way, the healthy way to do it, because that's somebody who's not ready to hear anything yet. Right, yeah. And, I mean, unfortunately, horrible things do happen to people. They do. But if you get stuck in that, oh, my God, horrible things happen to me, guess what? (laughs) More horrible things are going to happen to you. (laughs) If you can start thinking, you know, like there is better coming, better days are coming. And I promise you, I got through lots of episodes in my life by just knowing better days are coming, better things are coming. Interestingly enough, just wrestling with questions like this one, um, mm-hmm. And wrestling with questions of if you have a health issue, wrestling with uh, the issues about you know, what what mindset am I going to adopt as I'm dealing with whatever, whatever this health issue is. Um, just doing that much, it's amazing how that alone has an effect on, for instance, your social circle. Oh, yeah. For right? Sure. I mean, we were talking earlier, how do you change that social circle? How do you deal with the fact that your social circle doesn't provide the support you're looking for. Well, you start taking those little baby steps to kind of explore stuff and your social circle starts to change to match it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm seriously, I could get on Facebook right now and say, who do I know in this part of the country or this part of the world? And I promise you, somebody will get on there and say, Hey, I do. And I'd be like, I'm going to be in your area. Would you like to meet up? They would be Mm -hmm. like, it's down. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's meet up. I would love to meet you if you come to town. And on top of that, they would most likely say, do you need a place to stay? Yeah, right. <laughs> it happens all the time. Sure. Yeah. That's the beauty of, of uh, technology, too, because technology has really made it a whole lot easier to expand our social sense. It's oh, not yeah. like 
in the old days when, you know, if you grew up in a small town, that was it. That was your entire social arena. Yeah. And unfortunately, small towns, uh, the rumor mill can really get you down sometimes if you get mm. stuck in that, in that mindset. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, I used to always say all the time when I was young, I don't care what other people think about me, but I did. Sure. I did. And I was always trying to prove that I was not that stereotype. You know, I got pregnant at 16. I got married and divorced by 18. You know, so I was so worried about becoming the thing that I thought they all said about me. And it's so funny now because when I, I don't live in my hometown anymore, but if I go back for a wedding or some kind of a situation where I run into a bunch of people that I know from high school, they're all, every one of them is excited to see me. And I used to think those people hated me. <laughs> yeah. They didn't. <laughs> yep. And I tell my grandkids all the time, everybody is so absorbed with their own stuff. They are probably not really paying as much attention as you think they are to yours. Yeah, that's the most amazing thing about most traumatic events. I don't mean to belittle the traumatic events, but most often the person who's traumatized by it remembers that event entirely different from everyone else. Well, and I'm here to tell you that you can turn a trauma into something way worse than it was just by reliving it over and over and over and over again. You just make it that much worse. And unfortunately, when you've been exposed to some long-term trauma, it can take you a while to break that pattern because you're so stuck in the vortex of thinking about it and worrying about it and like you just get stuck and I call it circling the drain like mm. you're just circling the drain and you never go down because you're just stuck in this mm-hmm. vortex of pain and you're almost afraid to let the pain stop because you don't know what's on the other side yeah, yeah it's very so it's it's a hard change to make and I chose to do this change with no substances I didn't date. I didn't drink. I didn't do any drugs. I didn't take any prescriptions. It was just me and my feelings. And let me tell you, it was ugly sometimes. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) It was. But I knew that I had something inside of me that needed to be uncovered or repaired or fixed or just discovered. And, you know, what's really funny is I thought I was just going to wake up one day and be better and what I'm learning is that even every time I think I've gotten to the end of it, something mm-hmm. else pops up. And I, just, oh, yeah. I call my, I have a coach. I call my coach and I'm like, quantum leap getting ready to happen. <laughs> be like, Ooh, tell me, tell me. And then I'll be like, well, first of all, I'm really tired. All I want to do is sleep. And a lot of people think that's depression, but some it can be just need rest. Yeah. And I feel guilty when I rest. So that's one of my things. I I don't know where I picked it up from. Was my grandparents in the background saying, stop being a lazy bum? I don't know. Possibly. It's very possible because my grandparents were through the Great Depression. So they had ideas about how things work that are different than they are today in society. But I have a lot of guilt around not working. I have a lot of guilt about not being available for people. Cell phones are my downfall because if if I have my cell phone, I always have to be looking at it. What, what if somebody needs me? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the difference between the, you 
uh, having the cell phone as a tool and the cell phone having you as a tool. I mean, it's right. a big, big difference. Yeah. Yeah. And those are habits that we have to change in order to be healthy for ourselves. We have to learn to set boundaries yeah. around our own needs. And when you feel guilty about taking care of yourself, those boundaries are very hard to set. Well, as usual, we've flown through an hour, but we've got to get a couple more pieces of information from me before we uh, shut the whole thing down. Um, first and foremost, tell people about uh, where they can find the book. I imagine it's all the usual places, but tell them about that. Yeah, well, right now it's on um, Barnes & Noble, and okay. it's also on Amazon. Okay. Um, there are probably other outlets that have it, uh, but I know it's available on those two places um, it's, you can get it as an ebook on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't done the audible book yet because I want to record it myself and I just haven't had time to do it. Yeah. So I have intentions to do that, but yeah, I have a website. It's annettecopeland.com. You can check it out there. You can check out other things about me there too. I have a blog. Um, I also have YouTube. Just search for Annette Copeland. I'm sure you can find me. And AnnetteCopeland.com is also how they reach out to you for the naturopathic side as well? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Very good. Well, thank you once again for joining us. One other thing I need to do before you uh, leave and we part company for the day, because I make this a regular practice. Like everybody else who appears on this program, you are a major giver. You've been giving and giving and giving and helping people in a lot of different ways uh, through your blog posts and your book and uh, your practice and all the things that you do. We have a tendency, givers have a tendency to get ignored on a very important front because a lot of the content we put out gets picked up by people we've never met, we've never seen, we never will meet, we never will see, and we don't get any recognition for it. So I like to give recognition by saying, on behalf of those people you've never met, you've never seen, thank you for what you've been doing, what you continue oh, to do, because you, you are making a difference in your life. Thank you. And I try. Yeah, very important. So thank you very much. Thank you to our podcast listeners everywhere. We will see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody.